This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. The latest from Capitol Hill on the forthcoming changes to the Affordable Care Act was passed out yesterday and discussed by Republicans led by Paul Ryan. It included a variety of elements, including tax credits, money for high-risk pools, and a restructuring of Medicaid. According to the reporting, no dollar amounts have been put in so far because the Congressional Budget Office is still reviewing the plan. To take a look at these changes, we are joined on the phone by Rob Field, professor of law and professor of health management and policy at Drexel University, as well as Catherine Hempstead, a senior advisor at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Rob, Catherine, great to talk to you both again. Happy to be here. Hello. Hi, great to have you back. Uh, but, well, Catherine, what did you make uh, out of some of the announcements made yesterday off of Capitol Hill? Uh, uh, the the plans are the plan that is the policy document that's being uh, circulated and talked about is got a lot of our old favorites that we've seen in some of the prior Republican plans, like the um, tax credits that are based on age rather than income, for example, and increased use of. Uh, health savings accounts. So I think it's kind of a a mashup of some ideas that that we have seen before. Rob? Yeah, well, the the big, biggest detail is the little question of money. Um, So they talked about recalculating the subsidies, as Catherine said, based on age rather than income. Uh, But how big will they be? Everyone's expecting they'll be less generous than they are presently under Obamacare, but we don't know yet. Well, I, I think that's the huge question. That's right. Yeah, and obviously that's a, a big one. I, I wanted to start, and I wanted to ask you you both about uh, that that shift in terms of uh, designating uh, uh, benefits via age instead of income. Uh, Catherine, you mentioned that that's something that the Republicans have, have tried to kind of work through uh, in, in years past. I kind of break it down as to, uh, you know, obviously part of it is directly the age, but how this would all play out and, and obviously the changes it would bring forth. Well, I mean, I think there's also two sort of semi-contradictory things going on at once is an interest in changing age rating so that uh, carriers could actually charge a lot more for older people and charge less for younger people, and then at the same time, sort of on the back end, subsidizing older people so that they would have a better chance of affording their policies. And, um, you know, I think the hope then is, is that the policies for younger people would be cheap enough that they, um, you know, that they would be able to afford them. And I think the thought is that this is going to solve some of the take-up problem that we've seen in the current individual market where the younger, healthier people, even with the subsidies, are feeling like the policies are are too expensive. And so I think the the thought is that, you know, using the, the different age rating and some of the proposals actually have no age rating, so they're kind of wide open, and then, you know, offset that with some subsidies to older people, that's going to solve the problem and you're going to see this take up. But I mean, I think a lot of people suspect that the, you know, the kind of lower income part of the market's just going to totally drop out. And, you know, in fact, that's going to have huge implications for the risk pool if that happens. And I, you know, I don't know how a 
affordable these policies are going to be for anybody. Well, I, I guess there's two pieces to that, Rob. One, one obviously, the, the component which, uh, which Catherine just mentioned about the lower income people uh, possibly dropping right. out. But two, we already have a situation, and it's been documented, that, that uh, younger people hadn't been jumping into the Affordable Care Act as much as most people had expected. So what's to say that they would want to jump in anyway on a new plan to begin with, especially if there are no penalties which are now being talked about? Yeah, well, it certainly doesn't help with that, and it probably makes it worse. Uh, if you base the subsidies based solely on age and not on income, you're going to have lower-income younger people, uh, particularly younger people who've just gone off their parents' coverage, 26, 27 years old, right. uh, who are going to have a real problem affording policies, and we're going to lose them from the market. Um, it, it, there's also the inherent unfairness uh, about lower-income younger people uh, not getting much in the way of subsidies, and older people who are quite wealthy still qualifying for subsidies. Right, and that's one area which Catherine obviously was uh, was uh, made note in, in some of the reporting on this, is that seemingly the people that have the income uh, wealth to be able to afford these w- would be able to see a greater benefit from this than the lower-income people. Right. It's much less redistributive than the Affordable Care Act is, you know, which I think is, you know, you can you can sort of think about that from just a a risk pool and mechanics of the insurance market standpoint, because I think that the market currently, although it isn't, you know, functioning perfectly, it's very heavily juiced with public money. So if you pull a lot of that public money out, I Mm. think I think there are going to be some consequences. And then obviously, there's also just sort of a, you know, the the income transfer and sort of anti-poverty aspect of it, which is, you know, also, you know, being um, being Put into play here too. We are joined on the phone by Catherine Hempstead of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Rob Field of Drexel University. Your comments or questions are welcome right now at 844 Wharton, 844 942 7866. And again, if you're not able to get your phone, just shoot us a question or a comment via Twitter, either to the show at bizradio111 or directly to me at Dan Loney, L O N E Y. 21. One of the other pieces, Rob, that I, I want to make sure that I bring up is also there was some uh, conversation in, in some of the stories about the potential of taxing higher employer-sponsored plans. Uh, what was your thought on when you see that? And, and I would think that a lot of companies would, would probably not be happy with that right off the bat. They certainly are not. And the irony is that's just the Cadillac tax from the uh, ACA in another name. Uh, The idea is to make it less attractive to give overly generous plans, which encourage people to overuse medical services. Um, You know, there's been talk for years now about doing away with the tax subsidy for employer-provided insurance, Uh, the mechanism whereby your employer provides you coverage, you don't have to report it as income, so you're getting a tax-free benefit. So this is the first effort, I think, to chip away with uh, from mm-hmm. that, um, it's interesting that this is the Republicans who are proposing it. Uh, they're really taking something that's out of Obamacare uh, that amounts, in a way, to it to a tax increase uh, and firing the first shot in terms of making it into policy. Um, obviously, the big employers and the big unions don't like this very much. Catherine, exactly. Yeah, it's it's something that I think there's a lot of bipartisan support for and uh, and and 
antipathy for, you know, as um, as Rob said, because there's there's different kinds of uh, strange bedfellows on both the R&D side that like and don't like the idea of doing something with the tax exclusion. But I mean, I certainly thought that the Cadillac tax was was a move in the right direction, even if, you know, maybe there were some some other ways that it could be modified. So this isn't something that particularly bothers me. But how much would that impact the consumers themselves, Catherine? Well, I mean, I think the idea is that people would get sort of more of their compensation in the form of wages and less of their compensation in the form of of health insurance benefits. I mean, I think that's sort of the idea behind it and that that would, um, you know, lead people to maybe... Ultimately, I think some people feel like it could chart a course away from employer-sponsored insurance, which, after all, is kind of just a historical artifact that a lot of people have just, you know, become very used to. But that really, there's no particular reason that your employer should be picking out your health insurance for you. So I think some people feel like if we start to erode this this tax exclusion, ultimately, we would see a a much larger and more vibrant um, individual market, which, you know, frankly, that would be a good remedy for some of the risk pool problems that we see right now, and that, frankly, I think we would still see with the with the current proposal if there are another changes. You know, but then other people, uh, you know, are are you know naturally very wary about that, including large employers who sort of yeah. feel like this is a major recruitment strategy for them, and they you know they're they're uncomfortable about transitioning to a phase where they are not the providers of those benefits. But as you kind of said, isn't it just basically trading one piece of of, of financial income for the other by, by doing that, basically? Well, um, you know, I think the problem is right now that trade seems a little bit, um, it's a little bit of a leap of faith, maybe. I'd okay. be curious to know what Rob thinks about this. Maybe employees feel like, I'm not sure I'm necessarily going to get the higher wages. I might just right. exactly. lose and not gain. And then do I have a, if I were to actually maybe lose this um, offer of coverage from my employer, do I currently have a good place, you know, where I can, where I can go and, um, you know, and, and get a good alternative product. And I think that it could be a, you know, this isn't going to be a, a, uh, an overnight or rapid change if we, if we do make this change. I mean, a lot yeah. of people, I think, feel like it's inevitable. And with the growth of all these different direct-to-consumer markets like Medicare Advantage and, you know, some work in private exchanges and, you know, what we've seen with the ACA individual market, that at some point people are going to say, hey, I want to be able to shop for my own health insurance, and I would rather have have the money and go out and buy it, and I actually feel like I'm not getting choice that other people are getting. But I don't think we're I don't think we're there yet. But I'd love to know what Rob thinks. Rob, yeah. Um, so economists love to argue about this and <laughs> to to uh, look at the scenario where we get rid of the tax exclusion for employer provided health care. Uh, employers therefore stop dropping it and say we'll just give you the money uh, rather than paying for your health insurance. Would it be a one for one change? would they give you all of the money they would have given to the insurance company? Well, I think the answer is no, but how much of it would they give you? Would workers actually see an increase in their paychecks? If this works as it's intended, the employers would simply pay the money in wages, then you would go to an exchange and buy your policy. But we don't know how that would work. One aspect is the money that they'd pay you as wages would be taxed, so you would have less money to buy your policy with. Right. Um, Now, that could have the effect of bringing down premiums. 
it probably would have the effect of making policies less generous, even less generous than they are right now. It would have a very profound effect, though, in the structure of health finance and in the structure of health care provision because the, the flow of money would change. The other point is, if that's where we're going, then we better have a pretty vibrant individual market. And right. whatever they do to change those markets better hold up because uh, we're throwing people into them. And if they can't buy policies there, where are they going to go? Rob Field. Exactly. Rob Field. I, go ahead. Go ahead, Catherine. Sorry. Well, I just was going to add on. I think that, you know, people felt like maybe the ACA, as, as originally passed with the Cadillac tax, was going to sort of start to you know, trip, you know, forge that trail from ESI to, to more direct-to-consumer purchasing. And I think people felt like one of the early things would be the small group market and, you know, mm-hmm. the, the small group employers would maybe start to, to send people into the market to buy insurance themselves. And I think some of this has occurred because we have seen a decline in the fully insured small group market. But see, I think at the same time, keeping the employer mandate and some of the other things that were part of the ACA, I think kind of maybe uh made made that transition a little bit more difficult and then the you know the um you know the the take up problems and the various other problems and then taking the Cadillac tax sort of off the table as because it was so unpopular from all these different interest groups you know it things didn't really move as originally uh predicted but i i do think it's you know it's it's very much something that would start to be in play again if if we really did chip away at that tax exclusion but as you said uh, it, just a second ago uh, Catherine with with all that that kind of is in play here i get the sense that you know i mean we know what the problems are of trying to get a perfect healthcare system. And, and obviously there are so many of them that we, I don't know if we can actually get a perfect system. Th- that being said, I mean, just this piece alone, this is going to take several months probably to be able to try and get all the machinations kind of worked out on this. Right, Catherine? Oh yeah. And I don't think it's clear that there's the votes for this. I mean, I, I, I really, um, I'm, going to be very, very interested to see what actually happens if they start trying to mark this up and, and take it down the road, because I think if there are a lot of really dire projections about people getting thrown off coverage and affordability issues, um, yeah. you know, I, I think that it's, it's not going to be so simple. Rob? It would be interesting to see the town hall meetings that take place during, oh, the, um, yeah. during the upcoming congressional break. Um, it, it's so fascinating to see the mirror image of what happened in the summer of 2009 uh, to Obama and the Democrats uh, now coming for full circle as right. uh, proposals percolate to, to do away with Obamacare. Uh, a lot of people now are scared and, and, and angry that they will lose their health coverage, and that will obviously have a big effect on what Congress ends up doing. Can you get a a system, as as President Trump has kind of thrown out there, that is more affordable for consumers, Rob? Uh, If he's got a magic formula, then that will be amazing. (laughs) It will be great. It will be huge. Uh, if, If there is a way to provide more coverage for less money, uh, then he's got a brand new business line, uh, even better than resorts and hotels. Uh, people uh, spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to do that, and yeah. no one's yet done it. So um, if he can do it, great, but I'm um, just a little bit dubious. Catherine? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's right. I mean, there unless the, you find a way to actually make healthcare cost a lot less or make people want less of it, I think that, you know, you end up with sort of a trade-off between what's 
you know, less affordable for people privately, but more affordable for us publicly, you know, versus, you know, the opposite, where things maybe are more affordable for individuals, but, but are costing the public sector more. And I think some people would have said, you know, what, what you really need to do, the real problem with the ACA is you need to increase the subsidies, you know, especially maybe for some of the the higher end of the of the income scale, so that right. you really increase take up, and that would actually improve the risk pool, and um, you know, and then maybe slowly over time, it would seem like a better and better option, and more people would start to trickle in from small employers, and you know, slowly and slowly, as you know, people keep talking about sort of the changing wor- role of work and the gig economy, and more and more people maybe are not getting an offer from an employer, and you see the, you know, just the growth. And and the increasing health of this individual market over time. But, I mean, that's kind of um, suggesting that you sort of go the opposite way and you make the, you know, you make the tax credits on balance larger, but you maybe um, kind of ratchet them up a little bit more at the, at the higher end of the, of the income scale. And I think that was sort of something a lot of people think would have been helpful, but I think instead we're kind of, you know, taking public money out of, the, the market, which is, um, you know, I feel like that that's not going to bode well for, for, you know, for people to get coverage and, you know, for the market to really thrive. Our guests are Rob Field of Drexel University, Catherine Hempstead of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Your comments welcome right now at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. R- Rob, there's also a piece to this that, that, that I wanted to bring up. And, and it's not necessarily tied directly to uh, the changes that are being made, but it, it I think it is a kind of a key component that uh, that that governments, whether it be the federal government or the state government, need to continue to kind of push down the lane. It is just kind of the the lifestyles and the, and the better decisions that people need to make to be able to have the healthier lifestyles, and, and that to a degree, I don't know how much, but that to a degree would help the lowering of costs on a lot of these healthcare problems. It certainly would, and people spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to do that. Uh, the ACA has some provisions uh, in there to encourage prevention. Uh, preventive services are provided with no co-pays or deductibles. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's research uh, in, into prevention. There's new payment models, the accountable care organizations, for instance, which put more of an incentive on the providers to keep a population healthy, uh, and they're rewarded more for the health of their population than for the number of services that they do. Uh, but that's, that is a, a really tough one. And uh, in, in addition to, you know, how do you change behavior? We're not going to shut down McDonald's. We're not going to outlaw right. cigarettes. Uh, we're not going to force you to go to the gym. Uh, we're not. You, there are limits to how far the nanny state can go. Uh, so, yeah. so it's really hard to, to affect that change. The other problem is that these diseases are chronic. They take decades to uh, develop. So even if today we could implement a total nanny state, uh, it would be 20, 30, 40 years before we would see the effect on the healthcare system. Catherine? I mean, I think I think Rob's absolutely right, and at the same time, I think there are you know lots of expensive health problems that can't necessarily be prevented by a better lifestyle. And there's you know constantly treatments and medications being developed and brought to market that you know many times really improve people's quality of life. You know, they don't necessarily save your life or save healthcare costs down the road. I mean, I think that's the problem with okay. healthcare is that we fundamentally have a real problem accepting how much it costs 
but we're also really not willing to not avail ourselves of it. So I think that's why people are always kind of, you know, perpetually infuriated about about healthcare and and how much healthcare costs. Sure. And there were some other interesting things in the ACA that actually were pretty controversial that were about um, the ability of employers to try to compel healthier behavior by um, right. giving certain incentives in the workplace. And yeah. that's really turned into a lot of very, very interesting kind of legal issues about, you know, discrimination and sort of privacy. And I mean, I think it, it is another way to just reflect a little bit about the somewhat um, complex issue of your employer purchasing your health insurance and just some of the relationships that, and incentives that that creates that, you know, that, are, you know, it's, it's a little bit, uh, some of those things, you know, there's some ambivalence to some of those issues. Rob, obviously for a lot of people that may be listening to us out there, the the term Medicaid is obviously very important. I and mean, we've touched on some of the uh, the pieces to this in the, in the last 20 minutes or so. But as you look at, at Medicaid as kind of a, a unit right now, what are the expectations of how you think that the White House and and the Congress are going to try and 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 kind of affect this going forward. Well, what they want to do is block grants, just give the states money and take away most of the federal strings. It could just be on a state-by-state basis. It could be an amount per capita for each Medicaid beneficiary, but then the states could do as they wished. Uh, again, circling back to what we discussed a little while ago, the key question is the money. If they do that with enough money, the system can maybe be better because states could innovate more. Uh, If they do that without enough money, which is what the critics fear, uh, this could be a major cutback and could lead to a lot of people losing their health coverage. Medicaid, I've heard called the poor stepchild of our health care system. It's unloved. Everyone likes to take hits at it. But it is the backbone of our safety net hospitals, of our pediatric. Uh, pediatric hospitals, its influence is beneath most people's radar, but it's throughout the system. So if you tinker with it, uh, a lot of harm can be done. Catherine? Yeah, I mean, Medicaid, even though it's 50 different programs, it's the single biggest, um, you know, enrollment category. I think there's 72 million people enrolled in, in Medicaid. And and as Rob says, it's it's a huge lifeline for a lot of providers. And it's also um, really, really wild, widely different beneficiary groups. You know, it's it's kids, it's pregnant women, it's it's healthy adults, but then it's also, you know, some very, very sick people. It's, you know, aged and disabled. So I think that when you think about this transition to some kind of a per capita cap and you think about having a per capita cap that's appropriate for those different groups that have very, very different, you know, per capita expenditures and then thinking about what should those be and how should they grow over time per capita and what might happen to the sizes of those respective populations in the different states, you know, you can really think about some bad scenarios where especially for the, you know, for the very vulnerable populations, the age and disabled that you could, you know, you could end up in some really tough situations and also some huge shifting of sort of burdens onto family caregivers for some of those populations as the programs basically run out of money. And I think a lot of states that expanded Medicaid used those expansions in ways that sort of allowed them to shore up some deficiencies in some things they were doing for some of the other populations. And now I think you can imagine a lot of... um, you know, a lot of transitions that won't that won't necessarily bode well for vulnerable vulnerable people. Great to have you both back on the show. Thank you both. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Catherine. 
Sure. Pleasure. Thank Bye-bye. you. Thank you. You're welcome. Great to have you both here on the show. Uh, Rob Field from uh, Drexel University, Catherine Hempstead from the Robert Wood Johnson uh, Foundation. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.